Well, good Sunday, South Valley Community Church. Before we get started, I wanted to make mention of a few things. First, this next Sunday, June 20th, the Gilroy campus will be going inside for the first time in nearly 15 months. Our Hollister campus already made that transition, but now it's Gilroy's turn. And I want in this time as we do that, not necessarily to celebrate going inside, although that's a, that's a good thing, but both our campuses, we've been meeting outdoors, in person, and online throughout this whole time. So what I want to frame it around is God's faithfulness in a very difficult time. And as we sort of kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, just to honor God for His provision and Him being near and close to us during these difficult times. Now, on that note, I've already had a number of people tell me, hey, uh, Pastor, I, I want to be there. We wanted to be at an outdoor service or in person um, for the inside gathering, but um, I have an immune condition, my wife's uh, immunocompromised, or one of my kids has um, severe asthma. Whatever the issue may be, there are some people who want to be there, but, but they can't for those reasons. And so I want you to know we'll continue to do these online services, and we're going to continue doing them from here on out. Eventually, in several weeks, maybe a month or two, we don't know exactly when we'll be able to pull the trigger on this, but we'll switch just to live streaming our Sunday morning services. So at home, you'll be able to join us live in person for our Sunday morning gatherings. And lastly, on that note, as most of you already know, on June 15th, at least in the state of California, nearly every restriction that has been in place for nearly 15 months is, is being rescinded and removed. And so my encouragement to all of you on that is just to be kind to one another, um, not just as we go inside in Gilroy and already inside in Hollister, but just in general, when you're at the grocery store, wherever you may be, there's going to be people um, all across the board on this. And as Christians, just, just be kind to one another, care for each other, look out for each other, and let um, the love and example of Christ lead the way. Let's dig into our sermon for today. We are in the book of Acts in a series called Lessons from the Early Church. And today we're going to be looking at the death of a man named Stephen at the hands of a guy named Saul, or you may know him as Paul, who eventually becomes the Apostle Paul. But when we talk about Saul and Paul, it's the same guy. And just to briefly review to catch us up where, where we're at today is we started the series Jesus ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. All authority is given to him. He tells the first followers that they have a mission, and that mission is to spread the gospel to all the nations, to the end of the world. They wait, and on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes down and empowers them for mission, and the church is born, and thousands of people are beginning to follow Jesus. In a few short chapters in the book of Acts, those, those people face their first persecution, what we saw last week with Peter and John being arrested. And now this week, we pick up in a similar manner where one of the first followers of Jesus, Stephen, is arrested. He's been kind of put on trial. He's preached the gospel to the authorities who are questioning him. And we're going to pick up right there at the very end of his sermon to see what happens next. So this is Acts chapter 7, verse 51. This is the end of Stephen's sermon to the authorities. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you were always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one who portrays and murderers you have now become. You received the law under the direction of angels, yet you have not kept it. 
So it is this just hard-hitting message. He's just got done preaching the gospel, and then rather than take his foot off the pedal, I mean, he just leans in. You're stiff-necked people. You guys killed you killed the prophets of old, and it's, it's this hard-hitting message. And this is their response. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together they rushed against him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were there stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. Saul agreed with putting him to death. Now, a number of important things. This, this character of Saul is sort of, it almost kind of feel, feels random how he's inserted into the story. Like out of nowhere, Stephen is preaching, people are mad at him, and then it just says they, they laid garments at the feet of Saul. And then later it says Saul agreed in putting him to death. So he's sort of this mysterious figure at this point, but the author, Luke, of the book of Acts wants to point him out as, as someone prominent to our story, and we'll learn more about him in a moment. Now, the other, the couple other things you need to be aware of. Um, Stephen is seeing the faithfulness of God, even though he is suffering. He's about to be stoned. We'll take a look at what that means in a second. He has this vision, and it's the Lord Jesus standing up, and it's as if Jesus is approving of his faithful servant. And so Stephen is seeing the faithfulness of God even in his martyrdom, his, his death. Now, what they did to Stephen is it says they stoned him. And what that looked like in, in the first century Jewish world, the custom would be is that you would take someone out outside of the city and you find a ledge or a cliff that was at least twice the height of the individual being condemned and you would throw them over it and then you would brutally throw stones at them until they died. And this is why it says they kind of dragged him, brought him outside of the city and then they took this. Now, the reason why I mention all of this is Stephen dies outside of the city. And if you're familiar with the gospel stories, that may, that may have resonance somewhere. He, he's brought outside of the city to be condemned, and you can kind of connect the dots with that. Now, because of all of this, it says this in chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and mourned deeply over him. Saul, however was ravaging the church, he would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. Now, the level of this persecution is, is intense, and we know this because most of the time when small persecution outbreaks happen like this, it was just, it, they would just target the men. So you weren't going after men and women, typically in this time period, in this location, when there's these types of outbursts. But it says that Paul is so adamant with his persecution that he's dragging off both men and women and putting them into prison for their faith in Jesus. Now, there's a small detail here that's incredibly important but easy to miss. It says that because of the persecution, the first Christians are scattered. The Greek word here for scattered is diaspiro. 
And sort of the root word behind that is spiro. And then you, you, you have to understand that spiro means seed. So diaspiro, it, yes, it means scattering, but the idea behind that is you're scattering like seeds. And this is how it's used in the New Testament on many occasions. So think about this. The church is being persecuted and they scatter or the church is being persecuted and they scatter like seeds. And the imagery is important here. One is sort of this haphazard, people are running and they're terrified, and that, that is absolutely the case. But in another sense, they're being spread out like seeds who will turn into plants that will ultimately bear fruit. And what this is ultimately shaping up to, especially as as we turn to what's next with the conversion of Saul, is that in, in one sense, everything's being flipped upside down. Everything's being turned inside out. Most of our expectations on what should occur are being subverted. And maybe more importantly, it appears as if nothing is going to plans. Like this is, this is not how it's supposed to go. This is not how the plans ought to be. But in another sense, things are going exactly according to plans. It's not just a random scattering. These are the seeds that will turn into plants that will bear fruit for the gospel. And so this sort of section ends, and then Acts goes on and talks about other people and and other ministry taking place, and this mysterious figure of Saul just sort of disappears. But then what happens is in chapter 9, Saul is brought back into the story in the book of Acts. And this is where we pick up. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and required from him, he required letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So some information about this guy named Saul. We know from later kind of audio autobiographical accounts that Paul was someone who was completely devoted to observance of his faith, his religious, his religious system. He he would have considered himself blameless according to the law, meaning that all the laws in the Torah, there's 613 of them, by the way, he would have done his best to obey them. And if he made a mistake, he would make the proper sacrifices for that. He would say, I know I am blameless according to the law. Not only would he try to obey those 613 laws, he would have had them all memorized. And not only had those 613 laws memorized, there's good historical reason to believe that Paul would have had the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, memorized. This is someone who memorizes the scriptures. He knows them inside and out. He's doing his best to obey all 613 And yet, somehow, he is this persecutor of the first Christians, which should make you pause for a second. You have to understand something. This great satanic assault against the lives of the first followers of Jesus is being done by someone who thinks he is doing good. He thinks he is serving God in killing these people. He thinks he's serving God by dragging them into prison. Which should tell you something. It's sometimes great evil is done by people who have convinced themselves they are doing good. So it's not it's not good enough just to have good intentions. And so Paul is thinks thinks he's on the right side and he's persecuting Christians. Says he goes to the high priest and asks that 
he can get these letters basically so that he can go, it says, all the way to the synagogues in Damascus and drag people back into prison. Now, the geographical note there is that Damascus is, is like roughly 130 miles north. It's, it's on the, the border region of Israel. So essentially, Paul is saying, can I go to the farthest regions that these courts have authority and drag these followers of Jesus back into prison? That's the intensity of this type of persecution. Verse 3. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now, this is, this is powerful because there's something that's easy to miss. Who is Paul persecuting? Who, 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 is, who is this guy Paul, Saul, attacking? Christians, the church. But when Jesus appears in this vision, what's the question of Jesus? Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies himself so closely with the church and his followers that even though Paul is persecuting them, Jesus says, no, 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 you're not just persecuting the Christians, you're not just persecuting the church, you're persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? It's a terrifying question. And this is, this is terrifying for Paul in a number of reasons. One, he's having this vision and, and he, he realizes Jesus is, is, is true and real and he's persecuting him. But then also this is sort of a shattering of Saul's worldview. See, the Christian claim is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And on top of that, the Christian claim is that when God came to earth, he ultimately died on a Roman cross. This is unthinkable for Paul the Apostle. This is worldview shattering. The, the way Paul conceived of God is being radically challenged here. For Paul, there's no way, first off, that, that, that God would come down uh, as a human and be a servant, but there's no way he's ultimately going to die by the hands of the Romans and not on a cross. Remember, the cross just isn't a painful way to die. It's a humiliating, shameful way to die. It was reserved for slaves in Roman society, reserved for the worst of the worst. You were stripped naked and humiliated and mocked. So for Paul, how, how, how does that happen to God? That is impossible. That's not what would happen to God if he came to earth. But yet here it is, the crucified Messiah appearing to Paul, saying, why are you persecuting It goes on in verse 6. Jesus says, Get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the sound but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see anything. So they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. He was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. So it, it, it's sort of this physical ailment strikes him, but it's also pointing to something spiritual in, in, in another sense. So his eyes are open, but he's blind. And that's literally true. Like his eyes are open, but he can't see. But it's also trying to tell you, he's like, Saul, you're, like, you're spiritually blind. You don't see what's taking place. But the good Lord isn't going to leave Saul in this condition, physically or spiritually. 
It goes on, verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord, he replied. Get up and go to the street called Straight, the Lord said to him, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, since he is praying there. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and placing his hand on him, and placing his hand on him so that he may regain his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard from many people about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and how he has authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. It's sort of this funny break in the, in, in the narrative where God is telling this guy what to do, but he's a faithful man, this, this guy, but he's, he's almost like, God, like, are you sure? Like, I know you know everything, but wait, you want me to go to this guy, Saul, the guy who's killing people, taking people off into prison, who's been given authority to persecute us. That's the guy you want me to go see? And the answer is yes. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to the Gentiles, kings and Israelites. I will show him how he must suffer for my name. Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hand on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, where you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. At once, something like scales from his eyes fell, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So this miraculous healing, Paul who starts off as the villain in our story. He's the bad guy. He's the one killing people. He's the one approving of Stephen's martyrdom. Now, all of a sudden, the scales fall. He's healed physically. But maybe more importantly than that, he now clearly sees who this Jesus actually is. And this is what immediately happens next. Verse 19 goes on. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some time. Verse 20, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Isn't this the man in Jerusalem who was causing havoc for those who called on the name and came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? This is a beautiful thing. Immediately, Paul begins preaching, Jesus is the Son of God. His eyes have been opened. And then I love this line. The people who are there say, Isn't this the man who is causing havoc? Isn't this the man who is the villain? Isn't this the man who was killing the followers of Jesus? But it's not the case anymore. That's who he used to be, but Jesus changed him. And this is the case for, for so many of us who have been transformed by Jesus, is, is our lives have been changed. And parts of us that, that used to be so integral from us, they, they've been done away with. So this line about, isn't this the person who used to do this? That's true of Saul, but it's true of all of us. Isn't this the person who, who used to be a horrible husband and a horrible father and is now the family man? Hey, isn't that so-and-so that used to just be a nonstop gossip and now all of a sudden all we get from them is encouragement? It, isn't, isn't this the person who used to have the anger problem and now I see them have such peace? And that's what Jesus does. Isn't that how I used to be? But now, by the grace of God, look at what he's done in my life. And it's a powerful story about the villain, the bad guy, becoming a follower of Jesus. Now, as we step back from this, some massive, like, big questions begin, begin to arise. Kind of step back from the story and think about some things. First, what does this say about the character of God? What type of God do you worship? Let me ask that another way. 
Is the God you worship one who sees someone persecuting his children, persecuting the church, persecuting his followers? Is the God you worship the one who looks down and sees that and says, I'm going to show that man grace as well? Because if you're honest, sometimes the, the God we want is someone who, who goes and kills Saul as well. But the God that we worship is one who sees Saul and says, I'm going to save that man. I'm going to change him from the inside out. He's blind, but I'm going to give him eyes to see. And he's not just going to become a follower. He's going to be someone who's going to spread my message all across the world. That's the type of God we worship. That's the Jesus we know. One who is on the cross, who says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen said a similar thing as he was being stoned to death. The other thing that we get from this story is what is meant for evil, God has the ability to use for good. In one sense, the persecution happens, and what, what, what occurs? A scattering. This is horrible. This is not going to plans. This is, this is the worst possible thing. But in another sense, this is going exactly to plans. Because it's not just a random haphazard scattering. This is like seeds being blown in the wind. And these seeds will turn to plants and bear fruit for the gospel. And the last thing this, this thing teaches us is not only that God can use circumstances for his good, but it reveals to us the type of people God ultimately uses. And it's really encouraging because if God would take someone like Saul and use them for his glory, then certainly he can take you, he could take me. We can be used. God takes people, the last people you would think, the last person you would expect, and God does the miraculous and he changes people and he uses them for the gospel and his glory. And that's really good news. Now, all of this, all of this points and speaks of God's goodness and his faithfulness. And sort of as we begin to come out of a difficult 15 months, and, and as we mentioned, sort of in the, in the state of California where kind of restrictions are being lifted, this, this in one sense, this story has like kind of doesn't have anything to do with that. But in another sense, I think it does. Because again, all of this is speaking of God's goodness and his faithfulness in the midst of difficult times. And one of the most encouraging things from this passage is that line where Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus identifies so much with the church that the nearness is almost inseparable. And in these difficult times for the last 15 months, God has been near he has been close. He has been with us. He hasn't been a distant figure off somewhere else. He's been with his people, and we've worshiped, worshiped him during this time, and he's provided. And it's not to say that things weren't easy. I mean, this was a difficult time. As a church, we have saw a lot of heart, uh, a lot of heartache, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Um, we've lost people, and it's been incredibly difficult. But in the midst of that, uh, we declare that God has been good and faithful to us. And just like in this story, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of heartache, God is still up to good. Seeds may be scattered, but they're scattered to bear good fruit. And so as we wrap up this session, I, I just like to, to remind all of us of God's goodness, his faithfulness, and remind all of us of our response to his goodness and faithfulness. That when Paul's changed, when he receives grace, when God shows up and is good to him and is faithful to him, what does he do? 
immediately he is about his father's business. He goes out preaching the gospel. And I say this again and again, but now maybe more than ever, we need to to be thankful for God's goodness and his faithfulness, but in turn, we need to be about his mission. We need to go about proclaiming his goodness, his gospel to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts is going to continue that theme, and we look forward to continuing this series. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks for being near to us, for being close to us, for not leaving us or forsaking us, um, for being with us during these difficult times, Lord. And we know that um, the future is not guaranteed, that new problems, new difficult times may arise, but we take courage knowing that you are with us and that in the midst of of intense times, bad times, good times, uh, you are faithful and consistently good. And so we want to trust you as the good heavenly father that you are, and we want to live by the example of these faithful Christians like Stephen in the book of Acts, Lord. So by your spirit, empower us for mission. May we be a people transformed by the gospel and a people who proclaim that gospel. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.